0: Our passage is Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. The stories this evening are the stories of the fig tree and the story of Jesus turning over the market and the temple. It's an exciting passage. It's difficult, it's complex, but let us first read it with the help of the Spirit. So hear God's word from Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Again, this is a difficult and complex passage. We see Jesus, the son of God, the divine Messiah. He's just come into Jerusalem last week with the triumphal entry on the donkey. The tension is mounting. He entered Jerusalem and went straight to the temple. He's judging the temple and he's exercising his authority as the king of the kingdom of God, which he has been proclaiming since the very beginning. It's about the advancement of the kingdom of God. And here we see it happening even in Jerusalem as it had done in Galilee. He's done incredible miracles of healing and cleansing and casting out demons. And the expectations for his ascent to the throne in Jerusalem are great and grand. Let's dive in to verses 12 through 14. Let's jump right in and look at what's going on with Jesus and the fig tree. Because here Jesus judges the fig tree. And this seems unlike Jesus because his miracles so far have been ones of healing and restoration. This is his only destructive miracle. At first glance, it seems irrational and vindictive. He comes to a fig tree hungry and he doesn't find the fig, so he curses it. It almost seems like an excuse for being hangry, for acting angry when you're hungry and blaming it on the hunger. Modern theologians, on a more serious note, have used this episode as a way of downplaying the person of Jesus, especially since Mark seems to excuse the fig tree's fruitlessness by saying it was not the season for figs. Now, I'm going to provide some reasons for why Jesus actually could have expected to find fruit on this fig tree, but we're going to have to wait to the end to understand exactly what is going on with this action. While it was not the season for figs, it does say the fig tree was in leaf. The fig tree was in foliage, full foliage, so it had the appearance of a healthy fruit-bearing fig tree. From a distance, Jesus was hungry, saw something that promised to deliver fruit by its appearance, yet approached it and found nothing on it. And Mark explains, well, it was because it wasn't the season for figs, even though it appeared to be producing figs. Even if it were very early in the season, though, locals there are known to pick and eat the knops that bud into the leaves. Those are edible. And so even if it were very early in the season, Jesus still should have been able to expect to find some knops that were still growing into leaves and then into figs, even months in advance of the season. But this one, as deceptive as it was, didn't even have knops. Nothing to eat. No figs. The tree had the appearance of fruitfulness, even though it wasn't the season for figs, but it did not bear anything despite its appearance. So Jesus did curse the fig tree. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again in verse 14. And this meant the tree would never again produce fruit. The main reason, however, that this is recorded for us here and that this happened as it did is because it has to be taken with the next story to be fully understood. We're here at another one of those Mark and Sandwiches where you have two stories, one that bookends the other. There's one story in the middle and then two parts of another story at the beginning and at the end. The fig tree story starts and then finishes Jesus's judgment on the temple. So Jesus judges the fig tree. And Jesus judges the temple, so we have to look at these together. The last sandwich technique was in chapter 6. It's been a little while. We're going to find a few more here between this part and the end of the book, but we will have to take yet another two or three chapter um, hiatus until we find our next one. This is the fourth sandwich, and, and they will come with increasing frequency. And Jesus really, by his actions here, He's not just telling a parable. He's actually enacting a parable. So you know how the stories that Jesus uses uh, are, are always told with a point. Jesus is acting here with a point. This is a parable that is enacted. Some people call it an enacted prophecy. It was common among the Old Testament prophets. His actions toward the fig tree and the results that we're going to see at the end, they help explain his actions toward the temple. So... As we progress through this, we're going to look at his judgment on the temple. Then we're going to look at the fig tree and the temple together and what that shows us. And then we're going to look at Jesus's response in 20 verse 22 and following where he says, have faith in God. So we're going to look at the judgment on the temple. Then we're going to look at the fig tree and the temple together. And then we're going to look at having faith in God. So let's look at the judgment on the temple. This is, this passage is often called the cleansing of the temple. That's not exactly precise. Jesus did not come to cleanse the temple. He came to judge it. And we're going to find he has far more in mind than reinstating the temple. He's not authorizing the continuation of Jewish worship in the temple. He is showing that the temple has passed. He alone is the true access to God. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he talked about destroying the temple and in three days rebuilding it. With that in mind, we have to see that Jesus' actions here are entirely consistent with that, with that theological trajectory. Jesus drove out, in verse 15, you, say, and they, you see, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, some of these things were necessary. Those who were traveling... Those who who didn't have their own farms, couldn't afford to have their own animals. They needed to come to the temple and buy pigeons in order to offer sacrifices. If that is the valid sacrifice system. Jesus drove them out. That's an important word because it's actually the exact same word used to describe Jesus' action towards the demons. Cast them out. This is an action of judgment and of, really, destruction. This is a spiritual victory over the wicked forces of Satan, not simply moving the market from the Temple Mount to outside the Temple Mount. Now, these people running this had been seeking to destroy Jesus since chapter 3, verse 6. And they double down here on that in verse 18. And Mark is making his readers anticipate the mounting tensions culmination, and it's going to come in a cosmic conflict. When Jesus comes head to head with the authorities. But in verse 18, it says the chief priests and the scribes heard it, heard what Jesus had done, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They knew that Jesus was making a bold statement against the very institution of the temple. Now, one of the major issues that Jesus addresses here, we see in two quotes from the Old Testament, and it's the issue of Gentile inclusion. The temple seemed to be at this point excluding those from all the nations. Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Yet you've made it into a den of robbers. Verse 17. This first quote, these are two quotes. First one, the house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, comes from Isaiah 56, verse 7. And in Isaiah 56, listen to who is included in this house of God. First of all, foreigners, those who love the name of the Lord, those who serve Him, those who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, those who hold fast to His covenant, and they will be brought to His house of prayer for all the nations. Isaiah 56, verse seven says, this was never just Israel's temple. But it seems that the first century temple had disregarded this national inclusion, international inclusion, because there was a Gentile court there on Temple Mount where the Gentiles could gather, but they were allowed no farther. And now it was filled with a market. It's not even a place of worship. So if the temple is not going to accept them and allow them to be a part of worship, Jesus, the true temple, will. And so he comes and makes a statement about his person over even that of the temple here on the Temple Mount. He certainly has come to Jerusalem and made a fuss. He is making a statement against the existence of that religious institution as it had been so corrupted He says, you have made it a den of robbers. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 11. And that reads, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And immediately following that verse in Jeremiah 7, God prophesies that he's going to destroy the house where he made his name dwell at first the place in which they trust but now is a den of robbers and he's going to destroy it so Jesus is quoting a passage that anticipates far more than cleansing this temple he is going to judge it and destroy it and raise it again after 3 days now at the end of this episode Jesus left the story or left the city perhaps for his own safety because they were seeking to destroy him That heart of destruction toward Jesus, that's the fruit of the temple. That's the fruit of what had become this institution in Jerusalem. It appeared to be a place of life and spiritual health and access to God, but it was desolate. It was serving man-made self-help traditions like the traditions of the elders that Jesus had discredited in chapter 7. Now, as we consider our lives, In our church, and how we interact with the world around us, we have to ask, what would Jesus think if he came into our religious gatherings? Now, this world would say, well, let's just do whatever we want, and Jesus will be fine with that. No, obviously Jesus is not a supporter of any kind of religiosity. He doesn't want us to worship him however we feel or whatever works best for us. He demands proper worship by his design according to the truth he has given us. Not all religions will hear on that last day, well done, good and faithful servants. Nor will all churches. Which forces us as a church to remain vigilant. Let's be a place that asks, are we worshiping? According to Scripture, are we basing our beliefs on God's word? Is the truth of Jesus and the gospel really our only message? What are we doing here? Are we promoting our traditions, or our businesses or our social image? or Are we just doing it because it's what good people do? No, we gather here as people from all nations. Not withholding the truth from anyone that we meet, with the purpose of exalting the glory and the grace of the Father to, the lo- to love Jesus Christ more and to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's our church mission statement to exalt the glory and grace of the Father, to love Jesus Christ, and to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Would that be what we're about? Let's beware of Satan's use of religion and spirituality to hide our real needs. It's so easy to hide behind the routines, to say, Well, I've been there at church enough and I've said the right things and I can tell you all the catechism answers, therefore I'm going to be fine. No, that heart is not at all the contrite heart that God desires. Let's not disregard this place. Let's not disregard God's design for worship. Let's not disregard his means of grace, his word, his supper, his gathering, prayer the prayers that we offer. Let's look at the fig tree and the temple together. We saw that snippet at the beginning where Jesus judged the fig tree. We saw Jesus' judgment on the temple. Let's look at them together. In a sense, now what we're doing is eating the sandwich. We're not just eating the bread and then eating the insides. We're going to to eat them together because together it's different. And you get a fuller understanding of what's going on. Because the fig tree is more than just a metaphor. It's actually an Old Testament allusion to Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is represented by the fig tree. In Jeremiah 8, Israel was faithless. And it's described with incredible intensity in Jeremiah 8. They're called an evil family in verse 3. And the scribes are described this way. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. And it's even more pointed in Jeremiah 8 verse 13. and It says this, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, the Lord going to gather his people. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. It is not the season for the fig tree. It's also not the season for the temple anymore. That word season of the fig tree is the exact same word, and it's a, it's a word with rich meaning. You may have heard it. It's called kairos. Kairos. It's not kairos for the fig tree. It's also not kairos for the temple anymore because it is the kairos, the time. It is the season for the kingdom of God, Jesus says at the very beginning. He's all about the kingdom of God. And that means that it is no longer about the temple and the glory of those religious leaders and their institution that is self-serving. The time is fulfilled. The kairos is fulfilled, Jesus says in Mark 1.14. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That alone is salvation. There's no longer salvation in the temple, nor was there ever in the temple alone. Jesus has come to unceremoniously retire the temple, to destroy it. It withers like the fig tree did in the second part of the sandwich. The fig tree withered from the roots, Peter says, with such blunt obviousness. As Peter does so often, he speaks truth, and I appreciate it because I feel like I'm Peter in so many ways. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So has the temple. There is no salvation there anymore. Jesus tore the curtain of the temple in two upon his death. And he rendered it useless. There's no more sacrifice to be made in the temple. No more value attached to any of those sacrifices. In fact, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, as we see in Hebrews 10. There is no more mere human mediator of the line of Aaron to take us to God because Jesus takes us to God as our high priest. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 10. as the source of forgiveness. There's no more exclusion of some. There's no more favoring of others. There is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or free female, but all are one in Christ. And this foreshadows perhaps the temple's destruction in AD 70. Now, what about us? Well, I think it's important that we don't try to reenact temple things for our own spirituality. God has given us all that we need in Jesus Christ for spiritual growth and for spiritual life. Now, absolutely, it's important to understand that the New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament, and those are foreshadows, and those are those are shadows, I think, is an easier way to understand it. Those are shadows of the truths that come in Jesus, and so let's understand how the temple points forward to Jesus. Let's understand how the sacrifices give richness to what Christ has done for his people. But let's not go try to get spiritual life from these Old Testament reenactments. Also, it's important to realize we're not waiting for a physical temple to be rebuilt. Jesus rebuilt the temple on the third day when he rose from the dead. There is no need for a temple building. There is nothing the building ever did that Jesus doesn't do and multiply for the benefit of all his people. The new place for salvation is the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The new place he has designed for our health and our growth is right here. It's the church. And the full revelation of God is the Old Testament with the truth of Jesus Christ and the authoritative writings by his apostles, guided by the Spirit. We call it the New Testament. All of Scripture. Jesus' judgment on the fig tree expresses his judgment on the temple uh, in parallel with his judgment against the demonic forces in Mark. As he cast out the demons, so he cast out... The corruption of the temple and it foreshadows his conquering of Satan on the cross and his resurrection. And it anticipates his final day of judgment when all the wickedness that he judges will be slain for eternity. Now, the day of judgment, I talk about it a lot because I think we have to know that it is coming. We have to have our sights set on the end We have to remind ourselves again that we cannot stand under that judgment from any goodness of our own, not even as a perfect temple attender or lifelong church member. There is only one thing that will stand up under the weight of God's judgment, and it's his own righteousness. And we have access to it in Jesus by faith. So that's what Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Implicit in this is, don't have faith in the temple or its sacrifices or its priests or in the fig tree. True faith in God enables you to have a confidence and a hope beyond what temple worshipers could imagine. You can take a mountain and cast it into the sea if you don't doubt because you have faith in God. But I think there's also something else going on under the surface of this because mountains are the place of God's presence. And where was Jesus at this point? But on the Temple Mount or near it. He had just left it. Even this Temple Mountain, you can cast into the sea because faith replaces that whole system. Jesus replaces that whole Old Testament system. And this doesn't mean you can go and do anything with your faith. Say, well, if I have faith to move a mountain even pick up the Temple mountain, throw it into the ocean. I can just go do whatever I want to do because that's not at all what is being said here. And it doesn't express the power of faith itself. Faith itself is powerless if it's placed in the wrong thing. It's about the one in whom you have faith and it's about his power to do what his will desires. Don't trust the Temple. Don't trust the Temple Mount or any other mountain. Trust God alone who has authority over all the forces that you thought were strongest in the world. God is stronger. It means that we desire and we long for God's will in whatever endeavors we find ourselves, whether they're great or small, whether it's how we decide on a job offer or whether it's the food that we decide to eat in this meal, whether we decide to say yes to marrying someone or how we greet today that person that gets under our skin. All these are ways that we seek the will of God. And at the grandest, highest level of all history and redemption, God's will that the temple be upended and replaced with a much better temple was accomplished. And it was replaced with a truly powerful salvation in the suffering king. And he goes on to say this faith leads to other benefits. First of all, you can pray with confidence. says in verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, we're not talking about the long-flourished, ornate prayers of the hypocrites in chapter 12, but we're talking about the prayers of earnestly seeking the Lord. Jesus, oftentimes in Mark, he's going away intentionally to desolate places, to the mountain, to pray, to seek the Lord. Those kinds of prayers are not telling God what to do. Those kinds of prayers are letting our hearts be changed into what God wants to do. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When your heart delights in God himself, then your heart will be fulfilled. And all your prayers are answered. All our prayers are answered anyway, not always with a yes. But all our prayers are always answered with what is best for us. So we can pray with confidence when we have faith in God and we can forgive and be forgiven by faith in God. Verse 25 says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Because forgiveness doesn't come by any proper doesn't come by any animal sacrifice. It comes by the sacrifice of the high priest himself. Forgiveness of sins comes from Jesus, the just and the justifier of those who have faith. Your mediator isn't a human priest. I'm really glad you don't have to come confess your sins to me. Forgiveness isn't a matter of the right words spoken to the right person. It's about taking your sins and confessing them to God himself in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is a hard one. And this is the one Jesus highlights here with our prayers forgiveness. Because when we forgive, what we're doing is actually taking the wrongs that other people have done to us. We're taking those wrongs and we're taking the damage that they did and we're placing that onto our own accounts. Somebody wronged me, caused me damage. I absorb it and I pay for it. And that's how I forgive them. I become responsible for the debts that they owe. And I let the grace of the gospel that I've received flow in abundance right back. It is hard to do. But it is exactly what Jesus did for us. He took the damage that we had done into himself. And he forgave us by paying what we had done against him and when you can look at somebody who has wronged you and say i forgive you and will not hold an ounce of it against you then you can have confidence that you have received forgiveness then you can have confidence that you trust that what jesus has done really saves you but if you cannot forgive Then you live in a transactional, rights-based worldview, and you still think that eye for eye and tooth for tooth are the heart of the gospel, and so you lord it over others when they wrong you, and you hold grudges against them because they offend you, and you withhold grace because you have little reason to think that you've actually received grace. Brothers and sisters, let's let that old way of dealings wither and die. The season of selfish rites and shadows of forgiveness has passed. The time has come for the kingdom of God to find true forgiveness of sins by faith in God and His Son, Jesus, who will judge all wickedness, even wickedness that's under the guise of religion. But He will pardon and forgive all who cling to the suffering King Jesus, all who can also offer that forgiveness to others, those who cling with all that they have and all that they are. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Would it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths? Would we be people who live with no attachment to former things? With the shadows, because we can see the full revelation of salvation in Jesus Christ. And would that transform us to be people who forgive, to be people who then realize we are forgiven and live in grace and offer it freely. We thank you for Jesus, our temple, our access to you. It's in him that we even can pray right now. And we thank you for your spirit who brings your presence across the whole world, your temple, and makes it possible that we could even pray right now. It's through your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray to your glory. Amen.